Welcome to the Stronger Than Autoimmune podcast. As an autoimmune warrior myself, I understand living with a chronic illness isn't easy. You're not alone. This podcast is to give hope. I will interview individuals living with autoimmunity along with experts and businesses to provide knowledge and support. As a health coach, I understand there is no cure for autoimmune disease, but creating small changes can influence how we feel and be stronger than autoimmune. Hola, autoimmune warriors. This week's podcast features Oke Learnmark, MD, PhD. His research interest in type 1 diabetes dates back before his islet cell surface antibodies report in 1978, which followed by the first islet autoantigen, the 64K, in 1982. He also discovered the genetic association between HLA-DQ and autoimmune diabetes. He helped develop the golden standard, which is used to detect newborns for diabetes risk and other diseases. His Swedish laboratory is the largest Teddy location, which screened and followed newborns at increased genetic risk for type 1 diabetes and celiac disease. His personal interest is to uncover the mechanisms that allow prolonged infections and the immune response to deviate to autoimmunity. I brought him on the show to share what is next in type 1 diabetes research. So let's get started. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Okay, Learnmark to the Stronger Than Autoimmune podcast. Yeah, so from my understanding, you have new information about type 1 diabetes and you've been in the type 1 diabetes i guess you can say arena i mean you you've been in the medical field since 1971 correct that's correct yeah and yeah. what gravitated you to do immunology and get so involved in type 1 diabetes so that was primarily because we were, or I was interested in the insulin-producing beta cells. Okay. And as a medical student, I spent a lot of time in the laboratory, and uh, I, I shouldn't tell this because... We, a friend of mine, we were skipping classes that <laughs> we we went to every other class. So he took notes when I was in the lab, and I took notes when he was in the lab. Well, that's and not a bad way to skip class. No, it's not a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> and the in, interest was the. Uh, to find out how the beta cells, you know, they regulate how much glucose we have in the blood. And uh, I wanted to find out if there was a glucose receptor and, and uh, figure out the way the beta cells were able to measure how much glucose there was in the blood. A very basic question. And after I got my PhD, I got a nine-year grant from the Swedish government, and I could use part of that 
grant to visit any laboratory in the world to do work and learn some more. So I was actually given the opportunity to go to Chicago and work with uh, Don Steiner, who was the discoverer of proinsulin, you know, which was a major discovery to explain how insulin was made. So I went to Chicago, I worked in the lab and, and uh, Don Steiner let me do what I wanted to do. <laughs> you didn't have to skip class anymore. I didn't have to skip class. Uh, <laughs> my my training in the clinic, of course, fell behind. And uh, so the idea was to make a plasma membrane, you, you know, the envelope that covers every cell. And through those plasma membranes, we would then uh, dissect the different proteins and maybe find the protein that is the glucose receptor. Mm. So then uh, du during that time, uh, the first a study came out from London showing islet cell antibodies, which was the first demonstration of antibodies in type 1 diabetes, and this is 1974. And I, I was actually back to Sweden, and then I went recruited back to Chicago. And then I, I had started to make antibodies to the membrane preparation, because antibodies are very good to use as a tool to find proteins, you know, to find the antigen. And then, so I decided that if, if there are islet cell antibodies, maybe the important ones are to the membrane. And I was in a biochemistry environment and everybody talked about proteins and isolating the proteins, etc. So I, I was able through a colleague in the clinic to obtain serum samples from children who had just been diagnosed with diabetes mm. and those serum samples I used in my preparation of cells and membranes and found that there were antibodies reacting with the membrane wow. so then then uh, the next question was what are those antibodies reacting with you know what is the antigen and why does children who just have got diabetes. Yeah. Why do they have antibodies to their own insulin-producing cells? And what did you find out, doctor? So we find out that uh, using the children's antibodies, we were able to show that they reacted with a, a protein that we could see on in our techniques of measuring proteins. And it had a molecular mass of 64,000. And that became, you know, the 64, the 64K protein we published uh, in uh, the journal Nature and reported that children with newly diagnosed diabetes have 64K antibodies, or we call them autoantibodies, because they reacted with themselves. And then it took, we worked on this for 10 years 
to find out what the protein was. It took 10 years before we had the answer. And it turned out to be glutamic acid decarboxylase. And that's an enzyme making GABA. You know, GABA is one of the neurotransmitters. And nobody still today doesn't understand why, why GABA is made by the beta cells, you know, what is it used for? Uh, I mean, the beta cells are, they are not the neuron. They produce insulin as, as the major product and for their function. So then uh, I had moved to take on a professorship in, at the University of Washington in Seattle. And in uh, my lab, we then developed a, a method to easy, easily measure GAD antibodies. So those antibodies are called GADA, and they are the method is still used today as the gold standard for autoantibody measurements to detect children who are on the way or at risk to develop type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. And together with a colleague from Seattle who discovered that insulin is another autoantigen, uh, we had two, both insulin and GAD autoantibodies, and the two together became the method in the world by several investigators to ask the question, um, if a child in the family developed type one, what is the risk of the siblings and the parents? And many studies in families were initiated and it was shown that if you have two or more antibodies, I should add that was a third autoantigen in the 64K protein or in the mem- in that band of protein, and it's called IA2. Okay. And that was shown, shown latest. Now we have three autoantigens and three antibodies. So it was shown in family studies that uh, if you have two or more autoantibodies, the risk of developing diabetes in 10 years is 70%. So if you have individuals with two or more of these autoantibodies, then 70 out of 100 will be diagnosed with diabetes in, in 10 years. Oh, wow. And that led together with work that we also did on the genetic risk, the, uh, which is the HLA system in humans, which is controlling the way we react to virus infections, to bacterial infections, etc. That's controlled by the HLA. And if you do transplantation, I think most people understand that the better the HLA match is between a donor and a recipient, the greater the chance that the organ will take. Yeah. 
And that's because the HLA is reading everything foreign that comes into the body and is orchestrating the way the immune system reacts to foreign invaders. But GAD, insulin, and IA2 is, is not foreign invaders. Those yeah. are components of ourselves. Yeah. And, and the major, major problem that we still struggle with is what is it that triggers these autoantibodies? So in the end of the last century, uh, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, you know, they've been looking at everybody's research and, and the people at the Institute who are looking at research opportunities, they called a meeting together in uh, outside Washington, D.C., by the people who were investigating type 1 diabetes. And they asked the following question. Hi, guys. We are asking you to come to this meeting because we want you to tell us if you have enough information now to begin screening of newborns. And follow these newborns until the development of these autoantibodies that you have been working on so hard. You know, instead of following first degree relatives where the autoantibodies were really pre present, we want to know if you take a child from birth based on the genetic risk. You know, not, not based on if there is diabetes in the family or anything. We just want you to HLA type newborn babies, select the ones at high risk, and then follow them for 15 years. Oh, okay. And we will pay you the cost for this. Nice. Nice, so <laughs> we said. <laughs> so we give, were given the opportunity to apply for grant and we didn't know at the time uh, we thought because some of us had already started newborn screening mm -hmm. so nih felt kind of safe you know we can we can give these guys the money because we know they can they can do this what we didn't know there were six of us who were selected after several who applied oh. so that was there was three states in the U.S. It's Colorado, Washington, and Georgia, Florida worked together. And in Europe, it was Finland, you know, which was not surprising because they have a very high incidence. And it was Sweden and it was Germany. Okay. So that became the six laboratories who were funded, and we have a data coordinating center funding funded separately in Tampa at University of South Florida. So that's a group. That's the seven uh, people. And when we got the grant, then, of course, everybody, you know, we are researchers. We were happy to get a five-year grant, $1 million per year for five years. 
And then we say, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, we'll go home and do what we always have done, you know, continue our research. And then NIH met with us and said, you probably really didn't understand what you applied for. You applied for a consortium grant, cooperative consortium, which means that we're not going to give you any money until before you have a joint protocol. Oh, wow. And you will sign off to do exactly the same thing in the six different locations. And once you have a protocol together approved by the ethics boards in the respective locations, we'll pay you the money mm. and get the study started. So we screened 400,000 children and 8,600 were eligible. They had an increased genetic risk for type 1 diabetes. And we obtained, the protocol was to get the blood sample from, the first sample is a baby, three months of age, and then every three months for four years, and then twice a year until the children turn 15 years of age when they age out of the study. Okay, so now 40%... It's a lot of work. <laughs> so 40% of the 8,600 children have turned 15. So the study is the sampling part of the study when we get the blood samples. And we collected, you wouldn't believe how hard the parents work to answer all our questions, to give toenails, to bring water, collect stool samples every month, for oh, three, wow. for four years, it's it's a very very large uh, collection of samples from these children. Wow! So it wasn't just so, their blood; it was all these. Other... It was stool sample, was nails, was and 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 answering lots of questions. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> and, and so now, so what did we found? We found that it wasn't that all the antibodies came at the same time. So very young children below the age of three, they develop primarily autoantibodies to insulin. And they do that for about three to four years, maybe five years, and then it's over. So children who are 10 years of age, they never get eye insulin autoantibodies as the first autoantibody. So it was a peak uh, in incidence, you know, number of new children with, with insulin autoantibodies. That's about one year of age. And it was nobody had autoantibodies at six months of age. The first came at nine months. And then there was a very large number between one year and, and uh, 15 months of age. Very markedly driven by Finland, but but it didn't really matter in Colorado, Washington. Uh, they also found children with insulin autoantibodies as the first autoantibody 
when the child was only one year of age. Wow. So the, the disease is triggered very early when you have insulin autoantibodies as the first autoantibody. So that was surprise number one. Surprise number two was that the other antibody was GADA. GAD autoantibodies appeared later, not until two to three years of age. But they stayed increased. And we still today meet children who have given blood 40 times in the Teddy study. And when they are 13 or 14 years of age, at one visit they may have GAD autoantibodies suddenly appearing. Hmm. So they've been in this, they have been marker, biomarker negative for their entire youth, and then suddenly they get the antibody. Mm. And, and some of these children, even when they are 12, 13, if they get the second antibody within a couple of months or half a year, they may have diabetes within a year. Mm. So it seems like that is a second trigger. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep, and it's usually GAD antibodies, antibodies that late. So the fascinating part is that you have two diseases, and, and they are related to the HLA type of the child. Wow. And uh, for, you know, 50 years or so, we have not understood this. We have understood what the high risk is to get the disease, but we didn't understand until the Teddy study really showed that there are two different mechanisms. And the first one, the early children, you know, it's a very young age at onset, and it is related to enterovirus infection, oh. probably a Coxsackie virus. Mm. And the other GADA first, is another HLA type, and it's, we don't know yet. We're trying to figure out what the virus might be. Yeah. So it's, so it's, it's really a, you know, scientists like to talk about paradigm shifts and, you know, that you make major step forward by surprising discoveries. And I, I, I think this, sort of qualify as a surprising discovery that we have two different types of triggering mechanisms. But it's going to be so important because Coxsackie virus that is already the Finnish group uh, had indications uh, during the time of the Teddy study that the Coxsackie was involved and they developed the vaccine. The vaccine is now uh, acquired by uh, Sanofi, and they are going to develop this Coxsackie vaccine with the idea to give it to babies. That's wonderful. With and that virus, what are some symptoms or what? Symptoms are it's an enterovirus. So the children, about 40 to 50, 
8% of all children have a enterovirus infection during the first year of life. Okay. And it's one of these early virus that every child is going to be exposed to. You know, 40, 50% is almost, that's a lot of kids. Yeah, it is. And only a small fraction of those children will get the first antibody. And that group of children we identified in the world's largest virus sequencing project of the stool samples that the parents collected. You know, so the parents are really the heroes in this research. And a laboratory in Houston, is, is that where you are? No, you were in Dallas. I am in San Antonio. Oh, you're in San Antonio. So mm -hmm. south of you is Houston, right? Uh, and, kind of, yeah. Or north. Yeah, Dallas is north and um, Houston is like northeast. From northeast, yeah. yeah. So the laboratory there sequenced all virus in the stool samples mm -hmm. from Teddy children, and there is a lot. And uh, they discovered, the discovery was that the children who later developed insulin autoantibodies, they had a problem getting rid of the virus. And usually children, if you have a child with Coxsackie infection, they clear the virus within three weeks. You know, three to four weeks, the virus is gone because the child makes neutralizing antibodies to the virus. Right. And, and it's wonderful to talk about this these days because everybody understands the nomenclature now uh, during COVID-19. You know, the public has learned everything about virus and virus antibodies. Yeah. And in, the, in this case, it's the same phenomena. But what we discovered was that these children who develop insulin autoantibodies, they had a problem. And the problem was they couldn't clear the virus. Mm. We could find the virus in the stool for up to one year in some yeah. children. Yeah. And it should have been gone. And we call these children, uh, you know, long-term shedders. They are shedding the virus in a, in a prolonged fashion. So prolonged virus shedding is what the Teddy researchers are looking at now and asking the question, you know, if a child can't re get rid of, of the virus, why is the immune system then making an immune response to insulin? That's a great that, question. That is a great question we have to answer. If, if we can understand that, I think we can figure out the way these autoantibodies are made and how autoimmune diseases, uh, what the basis is for autoimmune diseases. So I know you're interested in other autoimmune diseases. Other autoimmune diseases have other autoantibodies. We don't know 
for these autoimmune diseases, why the immune system makes an immune reaction to self. And I think the Teddy study may be, uh, if we can explain how that, the mechanism by which the uh, a virus infection, for example, is turning the immune system to react to insulin. I think that will be a generalizable explanation to other autoimmune diseases like at rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, etc. Yeah. And uh, so my dream is to figure out how that occurs. And you know, enzymes are wonderful people. Enzymes are wonderful proteins. They can take a substrate and make a product, right? That's what enzymes do. And many of these enzymes, if you can figure out the way they do it, you can run them backwards. So you can fool an enzyme to take the product and make the substrate. So you run it backwards. Yeah. And then you can think about taking a patient with rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis and take that immune response in that patient and run it backwards, which means that you should be able to stop the autoimmune process that in most cases is lifestyle. I mean, it's mm -hmm. chronic. We can't get to, there is no cure of these diseases. Yeah, but if you could work, like you said, backwards to try to figure out what what is the, I guess, the, the, not the trigger, but how to even stop it from becoming an autoimmune disease? That, then we'll achieve a lot. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, I often get the questions from parents saying, you know, why do you work so hard on screening for the disease? You have... You have new, when you find the autoantibody positive children, if they have two or more antibodies, 70 out of 100 are going to get the disease in 10 years. You have nothing to offer um, to stop the disease. And parents are saying, you know, my child has diabetes and I lost all the beta cells and there's no insulin production left. Why don't you work on that instead? You know, and I'm trying to explain that. So I'm trying to explain to you that if we can't figure out the way the disease was initiated, we have very little to offer in terms of knowledge how to prevent the disease and how to run the process backwards, you know, to stop the attack on the beta cells. So that's the major interest yeah. right now. Yeah. Well, you've, you've come so far in getting, it's like a, a, almost a domino effect. You had to learn what these insulin, you know, beta cells are, and then you learned about HLA, which can you describe more of what HLA is? I think you kind of touched on it, but... 
Yeah, so the HLA is our survival proteins. Mm -hmm. uh, we, in the world is composed of uh, too many people, actually. I think we have too many people in the world, but that's another problem. <laughs> <laughs> Every one of us has an HLA system uh, that is tailored to respond to infectious agents. And these HLA proteins in cells called macrophages, so when you are invaded by a virus or a bacteria, the macrophages are the first line defense to eat the virus, and they cut up the virus in small pieces, present those small pieces on the HLA proteins. Gotcha. And those are, uh, we have three major types called DR, DQ, and DP. That's our survival. So if you grow up in Europe and you move to the jungle of the Amazonas, you're going to be dead in within a year if you are not vaccinated to yellow fever. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it sounds like it's uh, the HLA is more regional. Is that what you mean? Yes, it is, because... People who live in the Amazonas, they are, they are resistant to yellow fever, okay? Yeah. And their HLA types are very different from the Europeans. Mm -hmm. And, and the US. Uh, well, the US has everything. Thanks. I'm a US citizen, so I belong to the group. And, and, <laughs> and, and people came from everywhere. But you remember that it wasn't really the Europeans who killed the natives by uh, knives and guns and other things. It was the childhood diseases. Right. The adult Native Americans, they died as adults in rubella or measles because HLA. they had another HLA and they had never seen these virus the same way if you and I would go to the Amazon jungle and the expose ourselves, you know, to, to yellow fever. And it was the same. So the word has been sorted based on HLA and the local infectious agents and the scandinavians are in the pro they have a problem because they have these they have a very high frequency of the hla type you need to have to develop diabetes to develop type 1 diabetes so then people are saying you know why why are you so many in finland and sweden who have this risk HLA, what's wrong with you? And I'm trying to, ex <laughs> I'm trying to explain that it's only fifteen year, fifteen thousand years ago that the inland ice melted, and people came up from northern Europe, following the animals 
you know, the animals came first, and then the hungry, hungry people came afterwards to eat them yeah. or to hunt them, right? And and they brought with them the childhood diseases. They brought with them tuberculosis. They brought with them all kind of infectious agents. And those children who did not survive these infectious diseases, they died off, they never had children, and therefore you selected a group of survivors, and they just happened to also have an HLA type that would make them prone to Coxsackie virus gotcha. and development of, of insulin autoantibodies after infection when you were a child. And the problem is, you know, that these children, they could go 10 years, they could go 20 years with the autoantibodies. They had time to have children. You know, at those days you had children when you were 18, 20 years of age, right? Mm-hmm. And and so you could be an autoantibody positive person and have children. You passed on the genetic propensity to develop the autoimmunity and the disease. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. So, so it is. It's a bunch of. Uh, I usually say there's a bunch of tuberculosis resistant people who are the the offspring of those people today are the ones who have this very high risk of developing insulin autoantibodies as the first or GADA autoantibodies as the first because it really started, you know, the epidemic of type 1 diabetes after the Second World War. And and why is that significant? Well, in, in the Second World War was the first time penicillin was used. You know, before then you died in, in infectious diseases. And it was the time when people used uh, started to clean their apartments and houses and and it became more and more the uh, soaps, the you know cleaning, yeah, antibacterial, everything. It got so clean that uh, it opened up the door for these autoimmune reactions. Mm. So the children being born today, they are often not exposed enough early at early age in a way that their immune system build up a memory and protect them from later infectious diseases. So it's rather, if you're not really prepared for the attack when you're a newborn of all this virus, then the risk of developing this prolonged shedding of a virus, you're not good enough to make neutralizing antibodies it's increasing the risk for this adverse event of autoimmunity right well it sounds like um having this like you said having a lot of the penicillin 
gave the opportunity to have more children because you are helping people, but at the same time, you're not helping people because they're not developing the the their their systems when they're young. And that's how that's we right. get more people. And that's what you mean by there's too many people in the world. <laughs> well, that's another that's, oh, another, that's another question. That's another question <laughs> for a different, well, different time. Right. I can give you, uh, I mean, we should, um, I just want to give you one more example, and that is uh, Japan. Okay. Very, very few people in Japan develop type 1 diabetes. I usually joke with my colleagues there because they are very eager to help in the research of type 1. But I usually joke with them that there are more researchers in type 1 diabetes than there are patients in Japan. So, so why is that? Well, Japan has been isolated from the world, you know, for more than 3,000. Very few Europeans or Chinese came to Japan until very, very late. And, uh, and the example of where they went is in the opera Madame Butterfly, mm. you know. So they came to Nagasaki, and the only area in Japan where there is an increased frequency of the European HLA type that allows type 1 diabetes to develop is in the Nagasaki area, because wow. that's where the, the Dutch came there first, and then other people came to trade with the Japanese. So the Japanese have an HLA types which are rare in, in Europe or in America or in the US. And that's another example of isolation. You know, they've been isolated. The people surviving uh, are the ones surviving the Japanese infectious agents. And therefore, their HLA type are not providing risk for type 1 diabetes. Yeah, yeah. Well, Except like, in Nagasaki. Yeah. Well, like you said, it, it's an evolution type of problem. It's a evolution, yes. And it is, uh, of course, the survival of the human race. Because these HLA types, luckily, they are very polymorphic. There are lots of different HLA types. It's very hard to find two people on the globe who have exactly the same HLA type, except identical twins, of course, but that's another story. But it's, it's one in up to four or five million people, you may find somebody who has a similar HLA type like you. So it's a very clever system of survival because the virus is mutating as we have seen with COVID-19, it's mutating all the time. Uh, if it doesn't, it will die off and disappear. So the, the virus is thinking that I better mutate myself often. Otherwise, you know, I will disappear. Yeah, yeah, clever, very clever. Very clever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I appreciate your time, and I promised you that I would 
give you time to get ready for your next meeting. So yeah, I appreciate that. Of course. And thank you so much for your research and your dedication to type one diabetes. It's my pleasure. And, uh, and hopefully it will give some uh, ideas and novel approaches to other diseases like MS and, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and there are too many of them. Yes, there is for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And you have a wonderful rest of your afternoon and I'll get ready for my day. Okay. Thank you. You're in, you're in the future. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Enjoy your day. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is supported by listeners like you. There are three ways to show your support. One, rate the show on Spotify. Two, leave a review through Apple. Three, share the episode with a fellow autoimmune warrior so they too can have hope and be stronger than autoimmune. This podcast had so much science to it. Book on my website, Instagram, LinkedIn account to learn more about the science. I'll try to break it down for you as much as possible. As a health coach, I know tracking what you do on a daily basis makes a big contribution to symptoms and flares. If you're interested in a free tracking app, go to Isla Health. And if you're looking for an autoimmune support group, check out my site. I have local meetups coming up and Zoom calls. Sending lots of love and healing. Until next time, stay stronger than autoimmune.